0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to The Wheelchair Activist. This is a podcast hosted by me, Emma Vogelman, where I interview some pretty amazing disabled people and some amazing allies of the disabled community. Today, I am talking to the wonderful Kay Ashton, who is the host of Love, Life, and Disability. That's another amazing disability-focused podcast. Today, I'm going to be talking to Kay all about her experience of undergoing IVF as a disabled person, and importantly, a single disabled person. Before listening to this episode of the podcast, I want to let everyone know that this conversation with Kay was recorded before the recent U.S. Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, which provided women with a constitutional right to an abortion in the U.S., This episode talks about pregnancy and a woman's right to choose what she does with her own body. So please bear that in mind before listening to this episode. Kay, thank you so much for joining us on The Wheelchair Activist. I'm really excited to chat to you today as a fellow disability podcaster, but can you tell my audience a little bit about you, what you do, and a bit about your podcast?
1: Yeah, sure. Well, thank you so much, Emma, for inviting me on today. So I'm Kate Ashton. I'm a white woman with brown hair and blue eyes. I'm living in Manchester um, slash Salford. Um, Everyone gets that one a little bit confused. And day job wise, I work within disability. Um, So advising on disability and outside of work, I'm a podcaster and vlogger. Um, looking at disability but I'd like to say it's more like solution focused so looking at the positives what we have done and achieved and trying to find different ways to go about things so sometimes I might speak to neuro- neurotypical or non-disabled people who may like, do consultations to help people to get to where they want to in life I'm currently blogging my journey with IVF as a single disabled person wanting
0: to have a child. Amazing thank you so much and there's so many things about that that I want to ask you about but I think before we jump into all of that I have this big question that I ask all of my guests and I'm aware it's kind of a mean big question but what does disability mean to you? It's
1: it's a tricky word I think because it I like to look at my ability on what I can do, um, where I want to go in life and being able to find ways around things. Um, I think in life, everything can be disabling, whether or not it's people's attitudes, people's barriers or perception, whether or not it's a building or an environment. Um, Yeah. Um, It's a word that I think some people say is like a dirty word. And they need to learn to say it and know that it's an okay word to say. Like disabled, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing yeah. wrong about it. Um, but for me being a person with a disability, um, I try and look at the um, the ability part of it.
0: And that really comes through as well in your title of your podcast, which is Love, Life, Disability. But the ability is in all caps which I really love um so no I think that that's really interesting and I it was actually really strange but you know exciting timing from my point of view that we were going to be chatting today because I was listening to um another disabled person uh, do a talk earlier this week um and she was saying how so much of the time doctors assume that well, we all know that doctors quite often assume that disabled people are asexual, that, you know, we can't possibly have a sex life, and that as well, we definitely don't want children or we can't have children and all of that. And she found that really difficult to sort of deal with on a personal level. So I was so interested to talk to you today about your journey into motherhood and sort of what your experience has been especially as like you say as a single mom um you know sort of like what's that for let's start with the beginning how did the I sort of how did the conversation start with doctors that you wanted to do this
1: I was just going to touch upon something that you said as well Emma about people just assuming that we're asexual and all of that um it's only recently quite a few of my doctors have actually established that I was straight. They've just assumed oh. my entire life that, I, that I'm a lesbian or that I'm gay because when I said, when he, my doctor asked me, he's like, oh, um, so um, have you got a girlfriend at the moment? And I was like, girlfriend? I went, um, I'm straight, mate. Like, I like guys. And he's like, oh, so, since that, when?
0: That's so like, interesting. Always
1: been the way I've always liked guys, and he's like, Oh, mm, I just I'm never so sorry. <laughs> I was like, It's cool, dude. I was like, Quite a lot of people think it because I am quite boyish. I dress like a boy quite a bit, like tomboy. I wear a lot of hoodies. I don't wear shoes. I don't own any shoes. I don't own sandals, slip ons. I rarely wear makeup. So, a lot of time, I think just people have perceived me maybe to be. Certain type of person, and instead of just asking the question,
0: that's so interesting because when you think about sort of being out and about in the world and the way that society is, it's sort of your presumed straight, unless proven otherwise. Which you know, I think like Gen Z and you know, younger people are getting really good at challenging and not assuming, um, which is definitely something that needs to happen, but. I think it's really interesting as well from a disability angle and I'm sure that like other disabled people will be able to identify with this but I the there have been definitely a few times where I'm out with my female carer my female PA and people have assumed that it's my romantic partner um which I think is just I I don't even know where that comes from but it's you know, that's a presumption, which I think is really interesting. Um, so do you think that the fact that you wanted to be a single parent and go through IVF potentially made them think, oh, she's definitely not straight, she's definitely not with a guy?
1: I wouldn't be surprised if it had something to do with it. But, like, my team... Teen- what I'm going through the IVF with, they know that I'm straight. So basically one of your questions before was, you know, how did it come about? So me and my ex-boyfriend, we were going through the IVF together, but then he was a no-show to the appointment twice. And he was the one that started the process and was saying, we're now ready, let's take this move, because we knew it would take many years. So it was trying to get ahead of the curve. There's no point in us waiting two and a half, three years, to so then go, we now want children, to then wait another two and a half years. Yeah. So we joined the list after a year and a half of going out of each other. But then after six months, they were inviting us to the appointments to start to prepare us. And yeah, he just went off the face of the earth. And I was like, is it because it's going too fast? And he's like, well, no, I, he's like, I have a job. He says, I'm just too busy to be going to all these hospital appointments. And I'm like, yeah, but this is what it's going to be like anyway, going out with me. I'm just going to be in and out of the hospital all the time. Mm-hmm. And we transferred, we waited again for the next appointment, and then he was a no-show to that. So then I ended the relationship. I thought, if you're like this now and there's no baby yet, what are you going to be like at that point? Um and then I got took into hospital for an operation. And we were still together at this point. And then this was pretty much the nail in the coffin. He was meant to come and pick me up from hospital. It was an OSHA. Didn't turn up. And he said to me, I, I remember going down. My operation was at 1 o'clock. I started to go down at 12. And he said he'd wait for me in like the resource area for like 4 o'clock for me to go home. Never turned up. 8 p.m. at night, he came to the hospital. Wow. And obviously they were saying it was too late for me to go home. So I had to overnight and they wouldn't even allow him on the ward because eight o'clock is when visiting shuts. And he's like, yeah, but I want to see my girlfriend. And they're like, "Should have been here four hours ago, mate. That's when she needed you. So then I thought that's two IVF appointments. Your girlfriend's just had major surgery and nah. So I thought I deserve better. So then I asked the team then if I could mm. carry on on my own and they were like "I'll oh, just wait in case you get back together and I'm like no I was like he's not the kind of person I I need I need I need a man I need a decent person um somebody that will love me and understand what I've got to go through instead of maybe it's about priorities I think at that moment in time mm. so then I waited and then I went ahead on me and here we are
0: I mean I'm not gonna lie part of me wants to get his name and address, and run him over in my chair, because that's not how you treat anyone, let alone a a partner who you want to make, you know, a lifelong commitment with, you know, having a baby is not a small, not a small step by any means. So I mean, I'm sorry that you had that experience. And I find it astonishing that medical professionals suggested to to put this plan on hold to see if you get back together with someone who clearly is not ready but how did it how did the conversation then go when you were sort of like no I'm not going to wait around for this person I want to do this on my own were they receptive
1: they were perfectly on board with it I think um, I'd say the hospital were fine about it for me it was just trying to process all oh, the way you're gonna get your donor spur from, which clinics do they work with, whereby I can seek for the donor. Then, cause it's then not funded on certain parts, I then have to then save to work out that part of the treatment. And then also then have the conversations with my parents and have conversations with family. And we know due to the disability that I am progressing. I'm not necessarily going to get better. My tumours will keep growing and my health will deteriorate the older I get. So it's trying to explain to them. And I think they would their preference would have been for me to have waited until I've met somebody. But if you think about it now, I've been single four and a half years since I ended it with him. And I've, had, I've dated people for about two months, if that. So I think it goes to show even in in four and a half years, I've still not met anybody that I've liked enough to be able to commit to be in a relationship with. Mm. I've not got that time to be messing around. And like I say, I've still not met somebody. And even if I did meet somebody in order to do the PGD process, which I've been having, you've got to be going out of each other a year before you can even apply. So then I'm going to be... 33 even if it's now then it's two and a half years I'm going to be 36 37 I'm going to be like 38 if I'm lucky by the time I had half have my first child so I just know that time isn't on my side and I need to move on and my theory is if I ever meet somebody the right person will be understanding anyway and there's many people that have children split up and still find somebody else to go out with and most people my age have children now anyway
0: yeah absolutely I think you know it's not uncommon you know even if you're on a dating app or something to see someone who has a kid or has multiple kids so I think that I mean I'm so so pleased that you're going ahead with it on your own if you know because that's what you want to do for you and it if it really is you know appealing to the feminist in me like yeah, why should you wait around for, you know, someone to come along to potentially derail what you want and, you know, what you want for your life journey, your path and all of that. And so where are you now in the process? I saw on your blog that, you know, you had an article about sperm donors and sort of what you look for. And I loved your comparison to you know sperm donor and a dating app like what do you look for so yeah where where are you in the process
1: so at the moment i I've had my eggs removed and they've gone off for the testing so now I've got some embryos and I'm just awaiting the dates now ready for an embryo transfer so hopefully within the next two months I'll be having the embryo transfer so fingers crossed by august hopefully i might be pregnant hopefully
0: oh that's so exciting how how was the like select sperm donor selection process because what i mean i don't even know where to start what would you (laughs) what do you look for you see it in like friends and things like that where they you know talk about the iq or you Mm. know do you did you need braces as a kid and I'll lift that, but what is it actually like? It's,
1: it's, it's a weird process. I think it, it's, it's weird because, okay, with one sperm bank, um, because it was a non UK sperm bank, I could hear voice clips of the donor into, as he is today. So oh, as an wow. adult. And I could also see photos of him as a child. So between, let's say, six months to the age of five. They had a selection of photographs and you got to see his handwriting. You've got parents and brothers and sisters, all their part of the journal as well. So it would say if any of his siblings had anything wrong with them or if the parents, grandparents were alive, died, what they died of. And it's showing you like the full ancestry of what they knew about the donor. Um, Like a massive portfolio, if they smoked, did drugs, everything. A lot of information, more than you would actually find out about a potential partner. To be fair, in, in within the first probably year, like when I was going up, my exes, half of the information that I found out about my donors, I would not even know about any of my exes or their their family. So I always found that really interesting. However, the donor I picked um, was amazing, but it was causing complications. Um, bringing that over into the UK because Brexit took place. So then I had import duties, I had tax and to pay on top. But they were saying they can't just ship one over to me because if that didn't defrost correctly on the day that my eggs have come out of me, then that's a wasted treatment for me because you need another backup ready to go. Mm. So then they wouldn't have been able to have got it to the UK in time for, for it to fertilize basically. So they were saying that could cause complications there. So I had to buy a minimum of two specimens, get that sent, then you're paying for your delivery. But I also needed him to have a blood test to check for my genetic disability, which then they were trying to charge me at the same cost of sperm. So before you knew it, just for two batches of sperm, a blood test, and um, delivery, because I'd have to have paid for that twice because it's got to come separately. Mm. Um, you're talking of just short of £6,000 so I didn't have that sort of money so then I spoke to my clinic and they said oh they also work with one in London so I contacted the one in London and they said they don't really have many um, British donors um, like white Caucasian on file they do go pretty quick so she said within the next month or two we've got three or four which are going to be released and she said to me she'll give me the heads up when they're coming out and send me the portfolio ahead of time before it goes live on the system um and that was it I just I just picked from what came through that time it took me six months to to find a donor um because also that donor also had to agree to be having the blood tests and was also in a pandemic so it's him going for blood tests um agreeing because obviously he could find out he's got a disability he never knew about um so yeah I really thank my donor so all I know is he's got blue eyes light brown hair he's Australian is living in London he works in a coffee shop and he's got similar facial features to Prince Charles uh, as Prince Charles back in the day
0: I I don't even know where to start, but that's so interesting how the process works. There's so much more information that you were given, particularly for the European side than I ever thought that you would get. And I mean, I'm so pleased that, you know, you did find someone, but that also that person agreed to do the blood test, which like you say, you know, could be a daunting thing that if they find out they're a carrier for something that they had no idea about um
1: give them so much credit for that and they don't get paid if anything they get paid expenses up to 30 pounds so there's nothing financially in it for them to do it so the fact uh, that they're choosing to do this to me is just just amazing and you know i'll ever be forever grateful for it
0: um how have you like have you come across any Attitudes or presumptions about your ability to be a mom? Because, you know, that's something that I think comes up an awful lot for disabled women. I know that we're not able to Mm -hmm. either be pregnant, get pregnant, carry it to term, but then also, you know, be an actual mom. And you mentioned, you know, with a progressive condition, was there any pushback that you experienced? Um, Yes
1: and no. I'd say predominantly it's all been rather positive. A few people just think I'm nuts because I'm doing it. They're like, oh, you've got years ahead of you. You're only in your 30s. But they don't understand my medical part. A lot of my friends think it's great. They can't wait. They think I'll be an incredible mum because I already dote over my godchildren and my nieces and my nephews. Um, They're great. And I also know other people that have gone through that they're, they're not disabled, but they've gone through the single mum by choice. Um, they've not met people and gone through the same route as me, basically. Um, so I've got good friends in that situation as well. Even people that I have dated, because I have still gone on dates whilst I've been doing the IVF. Um, i seen a lad last year for two months, and he said he doesn't want his own children, so he's not bothered. This is the process that I want to do, because he never wants his own children. So if that's what I want to do, that's up to me, it's my body, do what you want. And another lad, at towards the end of last year, he said the same it's your body, do what you want. Um, I've only had one person I've dated that said it would probably become an issue to him because at some point he would want his own, he doesn't mind about the first child, he said, but at some point he is going to want his own, and it's whether or not I could. And I definitely said, I if you want your own, I says, I. would rather you not be with me because i can't promise you that and because i don't know how i'm going to be with this pregnancy and if it's if it's horrendous i said i definitely won't want to go through it again and i wouldn't put myself back through it i says but i would be more than happy to support you to go down a sorority route and have my eggs and go down that route but he was very no but i'd want my partner to carry the child so i was like i'd rather not take that risk i don't want to lead you on for two years and then it, it may or it may not work um from a medical perspective they didn't know whether or not i could carry the child so i've had to go for a lot of scans as it stood at the moment they've basically said um i might not be allowed an epidural or the other one what you'd have during a c-section because of all these spinal cord tumors so it's trying to find an anesthetist that feels confident enough to do it um as it stands at the moment it's likely to be gas and air or a general general anesthetic c-section because then they've also got to think about the pressure on the spine they're trying to get me to as full term as possible but for me to be aware that the baby could be brought early um if it's causing me too many problems
0: and just going back to your conversations with the men that you've sort of gone out with in this time I think you know that's so wonderful though that you've been having those open and honest Mm -hmm. conversations um because I think you know communication is so key in any relationship but you know particularly about something as big as this it's 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 on the dating
1: profile it's straight away at the top of the description it says like on like hinge and some of the other apps it says tell me something which is non-negotiable so mind I'm having IVF I, I hopefully will be pregnant by the end of this year it, it's non-negotiable and then yeah that's where they can sometimes ask
0: have you had I mean I'm saying this from like my personal experience but then also lots of friends have you had the annoying inappropriate questions um, oh, yeah.
1: Um, people yeah. say to me, oh, um, are you looking for sperm? Wink, wink. Um, ha- we-, we don't have to go, you don't have to go for IVF, you know. We-, we could always meet up on Saturday night if you want. And I'm like, no, I'm doing IVF so my child doesn't inherit my disability so I have to do IVF, mate. I'm already sorted for a donor though. Thanks, then.
0: Oh, pardon me. Yeah. That there is just, ugh. Gives me the ick, <laughs> as I think, like the young people call it. But... Uh, I wanted to touch on, if you're comfortable talking about it, but that not, that choosing to do IVF so that your child doesn't have your disability. It's something that I really understand, you know, myself, but sort of, yeah, just how, I mean, I definitely understand it. How has that decision been for you? Was it Was it something that was sort of, Obvious for you to do, and something that you've always sort of thought you would want to you know try and prevent if you could sort of yeah what what was that like?
1: It's always been a bit of a tricky process if I go back to when I was twenty one when I was going out with the love of my life, we had gone to fertility clinics together, and this was never brought up. It was a case of if I fell pregnant and the child had the condition amazing. We'll love the child no matter what. We're in a happy relationship. We're going to be together forever. And that broke down after like two years. And I never got pregnant. And when I was with my ex-partner, um, I would say he's probably asexual and he didn't want sex at all. He found it gross to think his parents having fun one night created him and his brother. He couldn't comprehend that. It was too much for his mind. And... He had seen what I'd gone through with my pains, and he'd also seen how me and all my friends have got different complications going on. And with the condition that I live with, there's literally no two cases the same. Like we're all affected so different, and you just don't know on how how it's going to be. Even I've inherited it from my mum, and my brother doesn't have it, but I do. And even how my mum's got it and how I've got it, or again, it's it's completely different so when we went for the fertility chats at the hospital they spoke us through you could just have a child find out when the baby's born you can get pregnant find out during pregnancy then you could choose to abort the baby or keep the baby or you could go through IVF and I've already said from the off I'd never ever abort a child not a chance so um he said that he would feel more comfortable going through the ivf route if we were to have children he said because he couldn't even though like he loved me to pieces he didn't want that child to go through what i've gone through and what my friends have gone through and he said i know that we'd be able to support the child and you know it would be brought up in a loving home but he if that child grew up and knew you had a choice to ensure that they don't have it and you chosen for them to take that risk he felt it could cause complications and we had a big chat about it then decided to go through the IVF route.
0: What a big decision though to have to make and I think it's really difficult when it's your own disability because you know I just reminds me of um this time, it was by far the weirdest job interview I've ever had. Um, it was in a church, and it was in a room under the organ in this church, which is the most bizarre place that they could have rented out to do a job interview. Um, but they were a charity that, um, you know, advocated for, you know, screenings during pregnancy and sort of all of those things. And they asked me how would, you know, what were my views on abortion? Um And if there was a child with a genetic condition, which I have as well. And I thought that that was a really difficult question to ask and to answer, because you sort of can look at it either from the personal lens or through the theoretical. And in that interview, I went for the theoretical, you know, if, you know, it's, it's up to the family, you know, it's choice, you know, I'm for screening and, you know, like I'm massively pro-choice. I think that's, you know, a huge topic that we're, you know, talking about in the news and everything right now. But I think it's got to be so much more difficult if you were thinking, is it, you know, not just your child, but also your condition and just what you said about, having to think about, what would I want the child to go through what I've been through? And, you know, my answer similar to you would be no, you know, I wouldn't want someone to experience all of the challenges and everything that I have, you know, all of the pain that comes with it and all of that. But you had to make that decision and from a practical perspective. And I can't imagine that that was easy
1: and it's practical as well now because um we laugh about it with my grand. But when we told my grandma I was doing IVF she went oh why don't you just go to town and have fun and I, I just looked at my gran just like <laughs> so shocked I was like gran like what she's like well you know just go to town and have fun and enjoy yourself if you want a child that much and so I was like mm, it's a bit risky and obviously if the new fibromatosis wasn't thinking, then you could well do that. So I could save myself thousands of pounds. But then I sat there from, from the opposite side and I thought the child's already going to be, as it currently stands, obviously theoretically grown up without a dad. It's just me doing it on my own. I don't want then to add the disability to it on top of it as well. And trying to give the child the best start in life, it's you know. God forbid it, I found out during pregnancy they had another disability or they were born with another disability, you're still going to love your child no matter what, you know, you work through it. Um, but if I could stop them having my own due to what I've experienced and quite a few of my friends then, then no, I'd never want them to go through that. And I'm sure, I'd probably say the majority of people wouldn't want the children to go through endless regimens, r- r- treatment tablets and you'd want You'd want to ensure your child is is okay and healthy. If you can, if yeah. You can.
0: I think particularly when you know in about being a carrier for something, or you know the high chance of it manifesting in your child. You know, they, like you said, there are things that you won't know because you know there are so, so many conditions, and you know you're never going to screen for all of them. And, you know, completely agree, you love a child, you work it out no matter what, and you know, obviously that's from, like, my position as, you know, not a parent, but, you know, I understand where you're coming from with that. It's, you know, if you have the knowledge, let's use that knowledge and make an informed choice, and it's it's really interesting, it's a conversation that I think comes up with various Disabled people, and it came up um, from me. Uh, I think for the first main time when I was in a medical ethics lecture at university, and um, so uh, there were no other disabled students in the class. It was just me, but someone's brother was um, was deaf, and said that you know he would never give up his like you know his deafness and it was part of who he was and all of that, which I thought, okay, I understand, but would you not want to give up the challenges that come with your condition? Yes, you know, being disabled gives us a lot of assets, you know, I think it it teaches us a lot about who we are, a lot about other people, and can make us very compassionate, empathetic, people but it's you know it it's a really difficult one I don't know if that resonates with you Mm -hmm. at all.
1: No I can totally um, agree with what you say it's like I wouldn't change who I am or what I've done and where I've gone because quite a lot of what I've done and where I've gone is linked to having the disability and these days especially in comparison to when I was a wee child is, they you now do camps and stuff for people with my disability. So then, you know, children, they're not going to be alone. There will be the support groups and they can get that from an earlier off. I would have the disability, the child will have it. You've got that big, you've got that support group where when I was a child, that was non-existent. So it, it, is, it is a tricky one, but and I, I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. It's like, I've got friends who have recently had children um, who have my disability. And they chosen not to go down the IBF route. They took the chance. Both of their children both have NF. And then I've got other friends that have chosen to go down the same route as myself. And it's and I just think whichever route people want to go down, it should just be respected.
0: Yeah, couldn't agree more. I think, you know, it's you're never gonna make a more personal decision. You know, it's mm-hmm. no, there's never gonna be something more important and it has to be what is right for you and yeah absolutely zero judgment either way it's you know your body your family you get to pick so I'm really interested in how your podcast and your work is resonating with people you know you've mentioned your friends who have the same condition but how is it generally being received by like by the disabled community really?
1: Um, I'd say so obviously I've got two parts of the podcast so I've got the love life and disability which is looking at me going for IVF as a single person by choice and I'd say that's been going down quite well so I've had quite a few messages on like Facebook for example where people are saying that a lot of the time, the PGD part of IVF is never really spoke about, and it's good for them to be hearing from other people that are doing it. And they're at the start of the line, so they're just about to start this journey, where I'm two and a half years further along. So then they're asking questions on, "Oh, what was this part like? What do the needles look like? Do they hurt? How often we have in them?" And again, from a medical perspective, that's just my medical journey. Theirs could be completely different. But it's trying to help them out as well and do what you can. And then the same as well for my single parent by choice is I've become good friends with some other people and then other people have opened up to me that aren't disabled and they were saying that um, they want to go down the street because they've still not met somebody and they're concerned that they're getting a little bit older. And in conversations with, they've been landing quite well. So a few people have said that even if they're disabled or not, they've learned um, new things um, through it, which is ultimately what we're looking for, um, is to... I, I hate using the word inspire because it's like inspirational porn, but um, a lot of people, like, it's it's good to see. Like, for instance, I interviewed a, a racing driver. Um, he drives for Team Brick. And I love go-karting, but I'm not quick enough to get out of the carts, um in cases of fire. And just to learn how he's been about that and the training and what he's put into that and, due to, and with his disability, it's incredible. It's like, wow, I really look up to you, mate. Like, you're doing something that I really wanted to do growing up and he's doing it, he's smashing it. And I yeah. love that sort of thing.
0: I think it's so important, though, that this representation exists of like different disabled people doing different things mm-hmm. and that's really what like my motivation with this podcast is you know to get disabled people are doing different jobs and doing different things in life to really show that things are possible because I remember mm-hmm. as a kid you know meeting the first other person with my condition SMA um, who had a child and it. Just sort of struck me as, Oh, you can do that, like I, you know, I just sort of assumed that it wasn't a thing, and mm-hmm. you know not that it like changed my decisions or anything like that. It was like, oh, okay, you know, I can see this as a possibility, whereas you know before it was something, I thought, well, that can't possibly be a thing, so I can just imagine yeah i I tend to veer away from the word inspirational as well but it can provide like help
1: and reassure that we can do things we may have to customize it and do it a little bit differently but it helps us to understand that things are possible and that like say we just may need to adapt something in a certain way um Mm. and it's about us trying to work it out as well
0: and it's about giving us the same choices as everyone else, Mm -hmm. you know, like exactly what you just said, it may need adapting, but that doesn't mean that it's not an option. So I, I mean, I'm so, so pleased that you are sharing your journey because I'm sure there's so many young disabled women who are, who will be listening to you speak about your experience and think maybe that's an option for me, or even if it's Mm -hmm. not just... You know, knowing that someone else is doing it and challenging this perception of what yeah, is
1: status quo.
0: <laughs> Yeah. And what disabled women want, you know, in terms of reproduction and, you know, all of that. It's it's so important. You know, I think in you know, my circle of friends, a lot of the time it's that pre- more that presumed, like I said before, you know, presumed that you're not sexually active and all of that and the amount of times you know you'll go for an x-ray or something and no one's gonna check if you might be pregnant because I just assume that you're not. Um and you know you having to take the onus of sort of if you you know if there is a risk being like, hey, by the way, you know, and by like being that voice. But I think it's just it is real I think empowering might yeah. be the better word to you know hear about people not only are doing single parenthood by choice but are also doing it with a disability
1: yeah one thing that i really loved and you know we've touched upon it a few times is about where the people just assume disabled people don't have sex is with Maze and Maze and isaac in sex education that love scene between those two i just thought was incredible because it kind of shows that you can have a love interest just because you've got disability. It's They're not they're not your carer. They're not your facilitator. You can have a partner and it can be same sets, opposite sets and you can have sets so you can be in love with each other.
0: Yeah, I really love that too. And I love the honesty of that scene as well. And, you know, that, you know, Isaac was, you know, a complex character as well. He wasn't, you know, I, I always go back to the me before you, you know, example. Have you seen that film? Yeah. And yeah. I've seen it. Yeah.
1: Cause they've got like two films now, haven't they? But yeah, I've seen it.
0: It's just, you know, that disability is so tragic. And like you said, you know, you can have a partner that isn't a carer and she literally was his carer in me before you, but no, I, I really love that representation as well. And I hope that we see more of it. Um Yeah so I'm interested in the podcast that you do sort of like what's your hope and aims with it?
1: I'd probably say similar to to yourself it's trying to get that further and wider reach and I've always said even if it's just one person that I can help and this journey, let's say, with the IVF part can help somebody through it and it feels like they've got a familiar voice, someone to check in with, and that support to help them out, then the better, or even if I'm to help somebody who's non-disabled learn about a disability, or maybe it's the first time someone's coming across this genetic condition. So when I had my website, for example, um, back when I was a young child, I wrote the website because I didn't really know everything that was going on with me. And if I'm going through it, other people might be in a similar situation is to let them know that they're not alone and that there are other people going through this and just want to support people. And I guess help people out where possible. Seeing if it's one person, a hundred people or tens and thousands, but it's changing that perception as well for that for non-disabled people, especially that, We might be disabled, but we can still do what we want to do and give us a chance And instead of people writing us off all the time.
0: You sort of touched on it there, but as you were talking, I was going to ask you, what is it that you hope a non-disabled person takes away from what you're sharing?
1: I'd say for me, it would be about the education and to stop judging and, I guess i don't know what word it is it's just basically where people just assume it's ask um it's like that perception side of things oh you you you're in a, you're a wheelchair user people just assume straight away you can't have sex or you know like a lot of time when you see some disabilities on tv it's all the benefit benefit frauds benefit cheats and then you've got that route as well it's trying to educate people um more so than anything that that we can do stuff but sometimes we may need to adapt it in order to do it, but to give us that that chance.
0: Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think, you know, the various forms of media are very much responsible for the misconceptions around disability and disabled people. And I think if we can get more authenticity either from, you know, directly from disabled creators like you and me, but also from you know, more authentic representation like in sex education that you mentioned, you know, then that's really going to go a long way. And I hope that, you know, the next generation of disabled people, which ultimately is, you know, what I think people like you and I are trying to influence, to try and take away some of the barriers that they will come across that we went through. Um, You know, I hope that that really does translate um so I wanted to ask you what would you say is something that you are the most proud of
1: I, I'd say probably it's a tricky one because I don't want to say having a job because just because I'm disabled I shouldn't be proud that I've got a job you I, can say it's that my human right to to be able to to work but I'd say probably Getting my first house because I managed to, to do it in my 20s. And I've done it all on my own. Um, didn't get any financial support from my parents or anything. It's so I grafted at work, saved and saved, did the whole house deposit, helped to buy, and bought my first home. And, you know, I've had to get it adapted at points and stuff for me able to live in it and to be as independent as possible. But I've done it. And again, I think it's, I've just done it all on my own. So if I've done this on my own, hopefully I can be a parent on my own as well, where a lot of people, you know, I see couples and they still haven't bought houses or my brother didn't even buy a house until he could afford it with his partner. And they're on a hell of a lot more money than me and it's two wages coming in. But I think for me, that's my proudest part in that I can look and think I've done this myself.
0: I feel like we need to have a chat afterwards about how the hell you did that and how I could potentially do that. Because, I mean, wow, that's amazing. It's
1: literally having no social life. <laughs> don't smoke, don't drink, don't uh-huh. cry, And be a very boring person and be smart, financial savvy. in I have Excel sheets and track absolutely everything. Cash will change bank accounts non-stop. I'm always looking for the highest interest and trying to stay on top of absolutely everything and save, 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 save.
0: Wow, that's incredible. You know, as you were saying, you know, no social life, don't drink, don't smoke. I thought, right, check, check, check. And then about saving, and I'm sitting here looking at my dog thinking, yeah, your toys are the reason that I don't have my own house right now. Um, But... I think that that's so incredible. So I suppose the flip side of that, what would you say is the hardest barrier that you've had to overcome?
1: i say the hardest part is, and I'm still petrified, is injections and needles. Is I knew doing IVF, I'm going to need injections on a daily basis. And they are my biggest fear. In to the point, I'm 32. I've literally always had magic cream. Um, people hold my hand. Well, um, I always swear to then willingly inject yourself twice a day, every single day. And then you're then going to have to do it again every single day for 12 weeks in order to get what you want. It's just focus on the price, focus on the price. Um, Keep coming and people are like, are you used to them yet? And I'm like, nope I have to move back into my mum and dad so that they can help me out I can't do it I can't inject myself but I'm lucky that my family are there to support me through it but I'd say that's probably the one of my hardest barriers that I'm having to overcome and other than that I'd just say people's stigma and people's attitudes um the medical model of disability um is a, well I say it's a funny one for you so um, there's a pub in Manchester I won't say the name of the venue because they do get regular emails off me and it seems to be this one place where quite a few of my non-disabled friends will just flock and I tell them it's not accessible but it's, it's got two steps to get in so I'm, I'm fine with that and every time I go they've now made their disabled toilet a bare storage thing with all the used canisters, food, all the things that they've thrown in the bin to the point you cannot get to the toilet. And it it did used to say disabled toilet. They've now took the sign off and changed it to staff private. But I know there's a toilet in there and it's the only one on, on that floor. Everything else is on floor three. There's no lift in the venue, so you can't even if you want to go, you've got to do the stairs if you want to go to the toilet. I know it's in there. It's safe room, And I'll just walk in every single time and it's like, we've passed all this sort of thing on my crutches. And then I get a load of ball ache when I come out and I'm just like, stable toilet, mate. Sable toilet. Like, what do you want me to do about it? I need a way.
0: I mean, I think that that's so much worse than there just not being one at yeah. all because there was one that's actually being actively taken away and because they
1: want to store their rubbish in it so i I refuse to buy a drink in the venue i'll just have water because i don't agree to be funding a business that doesn't support disabled people
0: yeah
1: i I refuse to even buy buy a natural drink now i'll just say no i just want water please
0: yeah no i i completely understand that and i'm i'm just so angry on your behalf that They've done that, and that it's an active choice.
1: Yeah, and this is what winds. I'd understand if the toilet wasn't working and it had a plumbing issue and it's out of use. Fair enough. But no, the fact that they're willingly choosing to basically not allow disabled people to go to a toilet is—it's just annoying. And it's like i have made—I've made my friend know that I'm not happy with the venue of choice. And they're like, oh yeah, but it's the most central location. And I'm just like, but still, come on guys, let's go elsewhere.
0: Um, Yeah, I think, I think that's, I'm just so angry on your behalf that they've done that. And I think that that's, it's just, it's absolutely not okay. Ignorance. And it, yeah. And it just sort of, it it speaks to, you know, how far, you know, rights for disabled people really have to go. I mean, it's, there is definitely a lot of work in terms of challenging public perceptions and all of that around disability. Um, But, you know, when you're dealing with crap like that, you just sort of think, really? Really? Mm -hmm. And it is quite disheartening at times, but I, I mean, I'm glad that you don't give them any of your hard-earned money no. because they, they don't, certainly do. no, they absolutely don't.
1: No. There's an incredible venue in Manchester. Big shout out to them. They're called Fifty and it's run by that Simon Naylor. And he recently even applied to get um, Arts Funding Council because he wants to make um, a change in place toilet um in the venue. And he's also got a theatre there as well. And unfortunately, Arts Council said no, wouldn't provide it. And next Saturday coming up, so end of the month, it's the 53.2's first anniversary of them being there in Manchester. So he's kind of like, screw the system. We've We've done it once before about money, we'll do it again. First birthday party, so they're now raising money next week so then they can, through their first birthday to um, see if they can get enough money to get changing place installed. Um, The teaching yeah. staff BSL, so then you could then, if you're a BSL user, in theory, order a pint in BSL, and it's the most accessible venue in town. Like, everything about it, they've got a doorbell on the front, so then if you're, you can't open the door, you can press the doorbell, someone will come in, they'll open it up. If you're not able to take your drinks, even if you can or can't, they'll bring it to you, Um. You've got seats at different levels. Then if you prefer to sit up, sit down, Um, very accommodating.
0: Wow, they sound amazing. They just get it
1: and they care and it's all genuine.
0: I think that's the biggest difference. you just said there, they care. Yeah. Because I know I say this a lot, but I try not to fault people too much on like lack of awareness on things if they've never experienced it as a barrier. Like... I think, you know, the typical example is a non-disabled person who, you know, say they just pop into their local shop and they don't notice if there's a step there because that step isn't a barrier for them. I'm not going to hold them necessarily responsible for not realizing this, but it's after you have realized it and you still don't care. That's when I have a problem. Yeah. So I want to ask you and I saw there was a piece on your website that you wrote to your younger self but I think for all of the listeners of this podcast I want to ask what advice would you give your younger self?
1: It's just I'd I'd sum it up basically in two sentences these days which is um, be who you are and say what you feel because those that mind don't matter and those that matter don't mind
0: I really love that. And I think that's such good advice for everyone, but I think particularly for disabled people who live in a constant, I don't want to say fear, but this constant worry maybe about Mm -hmm. other people's perceptions of you because of, you know, inaccurate media representation or, you know, assumptions of what you can and can't do in every stage of an area of life then, you know, you always are a bit apprehensive around saying things that you feel or that you want and, mm-hmm. you know, if it if you feel it's going to rock the boat. So, yeah, no, I just think that that's, that's such good advice. Um, so I want to ask you, what advice would you give to disabled women who may not have thought about motherhood as an option until hearing your experience? It's,
1: everything is an option. And there's just, and especially these days, there's just not one straight road to be a parent. You, if you are single, you've got the donor sperm route. you've got foster to adopt, you've got adoption. And you've also then got as well, if you're able to carry, you can go ahead yourself. You've also got IVF, you've got IUI. There's families being created these days through many, many different avenues. And if that's something that you want to do, don't let other people tell you that you can't do it because you can do it. It just may be going through a different route. So if they say you're not able to have children, maybe you've got no eggs or maybe you're not well enough to carry, well, okay, you could always get donor eggs and you could also then get surrogacy. There's... Many different ways that you can become a parent. And it's like I've said to people, for me, it's not about carrying the child. I want to be a parent. So, whatever way I come to that thing, ultimately, I just want to be a parent. So, whether or not it was the adoption route, whether or not it was surrogacy, whether or not, whatever way it is, ultimately, that's what I want to be as a parent. I want to be a mum. And yeah, blood doesn't create family, it's love does. So,
0: Oh, I love that. That's really sweet. And I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think, you know, we everyone knows so many different groups of people, whether they're blood related or not, that constitute a family. And I'm just, I'm so pleased that there are people like you who are sharing their experience because I hope it has that impact on another disabled person who, like me, didn't think. That being disabled and being a parent and having a child was a thing um so yeah i am so, so pleased that you came on the wheelchair activist and shared your experience openly and honestly with us and you know i the offer still stands if you want me to go and run over your ex, I will do it um, but thank you so so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure to meet you and to talk
1: to you no likewise Emma thank you so much and hopefully people will have found it useful and of course if they've got any questions about IVF, IVF or the PGD part of the treatment which I'm undergoing at the moment then you know just drop me a message and help them out where I can you know we're all friends but we're all family here in our disabled community as well and it's about helping to support one another
0: absolutely and I will make sure that your website and your social medias will be in the description of this episode so thank you so much thank you thank you so much for listening to this episode of the wheelchair activist with Kay Ashton it's been so interesting talking to her and learning about the amazing ways that you can start a family in whatever way and form that is to you It's usually at this point that I ask everyone to donate what they can to the accessibility of this podcast. But given the recent events in the United States, the Wheelchair Activist team has decided to ask everyone to donate what they can to Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood delivers vital reproductive health care, sex education, and information to millions of people worldwide. We realize that this is a very scary time for women and girls across the world who are worried about their access to a safe and legal abortion. We stand with everyone scared and we will continue to fight with you until everyone has the right to choose what they do with their own body. Thank you so much for listening. Please donate what you can to Planned Parenthood and we will see you in the next episode.